Thanksgiving. Um, if you are relatively new here, uh, you might not know who I am. I'm Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. I've been away for a few weeks, but glad to be back. And we, uh, as a church, our regular series right now, our regular sermon series is Revelation. We're taking time to go through this whole book. Started in the summertime, was it? And, um, or spring? And we'll be going through probably till next spring, but we take breaks here and there. So we took a little bit of a break to focus on the anniversary of the Reformation, 500 years of the Reformation, rediscovering, um, reemphasizing the good news uh, of the gospel. And now, actually, we are uh, in the Advent season. So we are going to take the next four Sundays, technically it starts next Sunday, but we're going to take the next four Sundays, including today, to uh, talk about Christmas and really the heart of Christmas. The heart of Christmas is the incarnation, that God has become a man. Uh, And this series, this Advent series, is entitled Jesus the Man, and we're going to focus on, in particular, the, the truth of his humanity. Uh, we've done different things in our different Advent series. Sometimes we're focused on his divinity. Sometimes we're focused how his divinity and humanity work together. That's what we did last year. But I felt uh, this year that it would be wise for us to focus on his humanity. And so we'll take time to, to dig into this. And guys, we need to do this because uh, for multiple reasons, Christmas time uh, is often a distracting time. It's often a time where we're actually drawn away from considering Christ and remembering the wonder of his incarnation. Uh, and and we, we need help. There's this constant draw away from Christ during Christmas. Isn't that sadly ironic that during Christmas time we would find ourselves drawn away uh, from, from Christ? Um, and it, there's lots of reasons behind it. Um, can you imagine, actually, uh, if it were your birthday and a, uh, a friend brought you to the party, and there were all these people there at the party for your birthday party, and uh, you walked in the room, there's a room full of friends and family, and you notice first off that they're all dressed up, that's nice, but they're all dressed up in like certain colors. They aren't necessarily your favorite colors, but they're all, they're all coordinated in these certain colors, and, and in this uh, place where your birthday party is going to be, they've, they've brought, for some reason, a pine tree into the room, and it's there, and it's decorated with all the colors that they're wearing. There's these bulbs and, and, and everything, and, uh, and the, the tree's lit up there for your birthday. And, and you're scratching your head, and like, this is interesting. And then you notice beneath the tree, huge piles of presents. And you're thinking, it's my birthday, and these must be for me, but this seems a little bit over the top. There's a lot of presents here, you know, but boy, nice, nice and generous, and and you're there in the room, and, and, uh, and your friend uh, escorts you actually to a corner of the room to a special seat for you. That's kind of off in the corner. And they sit you down in the seat, and they put a spotlight on you. And around you in your seat are, are different uh, props from the delivery room where you were delivered. And you, and you sit there in the corner and in this setting, and you're thinking, this is interesting. And, and the birthday party continues. And you notice that people are interacting at this birthday party, but they're really not interacting with you. They're interacting with each other, and they're, and they're having a great time together. Every now and then they look over at you in the corner, and they say, isn't that nice? That's such an authentic delivery room scene over there. And then they go back to resuming what they're doing, and you're, you're wondering what's going on, and then all of a sudden, uh, these 
big man with a huge belly and a white beard and this outlandish costume comes into the room and kind of steals the show for your birthday party and starts handing out gifts to everybody and there's all this hubbub and then all of a sudden there's a, a fury of, of gift unwrapping from the gifts under the tree and there's wrapping paper going everywhere but none of the gifts are for you. They're only for each other. Now, if this were a real scenario, by this point in time, you would have stood up out of your quaint little sitting area and said, what's going on here? Is this my birthday or not? Now, I don't tell this uh, somewhat absurd story to, uh, to crack on the traditions that we enjoy. That's not the point. But my point is, we need help in focusing during Christmas, don't we? Because in some ways, that absurd scenario is real. And there's all these things that we do that are, are fine in and of themselves, but, but they can take our attention away from Christ. And sometimes we just kind of look at the manger scene, oh, isn't that nice? And then we go back to the, all the other festivities. And so our desire as a church in this series is to really help us focus on, on the reason for this season, to focus on Christ Himself, and to focus in particular on the wonder, the mystery, the, the glory of the Incarnation. That's what we want to do. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, a uh, section in there where the Gabriel, the angel, speaks to Mary. But let's pray and ask the Lord to help us focus. Help us focus on Him and, and the glory of, of who He is in His humanity. Lord, we ask You for help. And Lord, uh, though there are many nice things about Christmas, nice traditions, um, Lord, we find ourselves distracted. Um, sometimes it's just because we're busy in the preparations. And Lord, um, we're grateful again for these things, but Lord, we don't want to ignore you. We want to have a fresh sense of your glory and a fresh sense of awe and what you've done, and who you are. Lord, this Christmas story, the story of your incarnation, is so fantastic that, that when we see it in its fullness in heaven, we're going to praise you forever and ever, and all that it brings. So we ask you for help now, here, and in, in this world, and in our fallenness. Help us to see and behold, and be changed. Help me, Lord, to so teach and proclaim your truth that I can be useful to you and your precious people. And those in our midst that don't yet know you as well, that they would see you for who you are and put their faith in you, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please follow along with me. Luke chapter 1, I'll start in verse 26 and read through verse 38. This is when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces to her that she's going to conceive a, a very special son. It says in verse 26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This section in the Gospel of Luke uh, teaches us two key truths about Jesus. And we're going to hit on these. First, that He is fully God. And second, that He's fully man. And I'm going to talk about that in reverse order. And I'm going to talk about them in, in reference to His humanity. How could this be? What does it mean that He's fully man? And I want to tease that out a little bit, looking at this passage and then related passages. And then I want to talk about how He could possibly be fully God and fully man at the same time. Does not impact His humanity. And so I'll take time to look at that from this passage and elsewhere in Scripture. The, the goal in all this is not just to fill your minds with information. Though that's important. Truth is important. Information is important. But I believe that these truths, when we properly understand them and apply them, lead to not just information, but transformation. They change our lives. And so my objective, I believe God's objective in His Word, is for transformation this morning. And I trust as a result of contemplating His humanity, knowing Jesus as a real human, I trusting this will transform our lives. Change us. And that you will go from this place different than how you came in. So let's begin. First, I want to talk about the truth that God the Son became a full human in the man Jesus. So as we look at our passage, there are numerous places that teach us that He's a man. We see in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That Mary is going to have a son. She's going to have a male child. This course implies this is a human child. This is a, a, a male child, a human being. It says also that, that he will, uh, God will give him the throne of his father, David. So he has, he's a human, and he has human, he's from a line, the line of David. He has a genetic heritage. He's a descendant of David, a real human being. So it makes it clear here, and of course elsewhere in Scripture, that he's human. He's, he's, a, he's a boy and going to be a man. He's not something besides that. He's not half human. He's not uh, some sort of you know, demigod, some sort of superhuman that's godlike. He's a human, a real man, a real person. And, and, and the, the, the implications of what the angel says to Mary are, are profound that she is going to conceive Jesus in her womb. That there's going to be a, a, a zygote formed, a, a fertilized egg formed, and it's going to implant in the side of her uterus. It's going to divide and grow, and it's going to go through all the stages of human gestation, just like we all have. It's going to go through a full human experience in her womb. So it wasn't that God came and boom, she was at full term, nine months, there was a baby formed, 
boom in her, and, and then she gave birth the next day. No, there was a process, a very human process, a very normal process of Jesus being formed in her womb. No different than you and me. Now, the wonder is that from that moment of conception and the power of the Holy Spirit, different than how we were conceived in that sense, but nevertheless fully human as a zygote, from that moment of, of being formed, he was fully human and fully God. And that's wild to think about. That zygote was fully God and fully human. Uh, just wonderful to consider. But, but he was fully human. He was a normal human being like you and me. And, and Scripture testifies to this reality over and over again. And the, the problem is, guys, that we often kind of sh shortchange his humanity for his divinity because our minds have trouble kind of reconciling the two, right? We think he's fully God, but how can he be fully human like me or like us? How can he be that? And so we tend to kind of lean in our thinking about Jesus. We lean to his divinity and kind of ignore his humanity. And the Bible's very consistent and clear that he's a normal human being in every way except sin. He didn't inherit the sin nature, but his humanity, just like Adam's humanity was full humanity before his fall, Adam and Eve's humanity, he's fully human. He's like us in every way. And, and as a matter of fact, Scripture in a number of places emphasizes that he's no different than an ordinary human. He's an average human being. He's not like, he's not, you know, a super athlete human. He's not an Olympian. He's not a genius. Despite what the movies show, he's not male model material either. Isaiah 53 tells us straightforwardly, it says this, Isaiah 53, 1 and 2, says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Speaking, he's going to speak about Jesus. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out, out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing attractive about Jesus. You didn't look at Jesus and say, yeah, definitely, that's the Messiah right there. That guy. That good-looking guy with the blue eyes. That's the Messiah. You didn't, you didn't say that about Jesus. Isaiah 53 makes that clear. It's elsewhere, too, actually, as you read about people's interactions with Jesus, many, many people had no trouble at all in seeing him as a normal human being. So when he goes back to his hometown in Nazareth, what happens? They say, oh yeah, I remember that guy. I knew from day one he was the Messiah. No, he goes back to his town in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. It says in, uh, he goes to the synagogue. He reads from Isaiah 61. And it says this, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. They saw Jesus as a normal, ordinary person. And they were indignant that somehow he's implying that he's more. Because why? He's fully human. He's a normal human being. His own brothers, his own family, and his own brothers in particular, didn't think he was anything special. John chapter 7, as he's interacting with his brothers, it says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. 
he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then it says this, verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. He was no one special. He was normal. No special talents. He was not superhuman. He wasn't a Hollywood movie star. He probably didn't look like the images we see. Actually, recently scientists did a little bit of work uh, looking at genetics and, and trying to imagine what Jesus might have looked like based on the, what we know of genetics from uh, ancient Near Eastern Semitic peoples. They came up with a likely facial structure and appearance of Jesus. If you could put that up, Dan. The one on the left is what they came up with. That's what Jesus most likely looks like. We don't know, but he doesn't look like the guys on the right. Upper right, that's Jesus of Nazareth movie, right? Classic Jesus with an English accent and blue eyes. Lower right is from the Passion of the Christ. Uh, Good-looking Jesus, a little better, he's got brown eyes, but no, neither one. More likely, that very normal-looking ancient Near Eastern man there on the left. Why do I show you this? Well, just to adjust your understanding that Jesus was a very normal human being, like you and like me. He was like us. He had to be like us in every respect except for sin so that he could fully identify and fully qualify as a human. That he could relate to us. He couldn't cheat. He couldn't be like 95% human and 5% you know, divine. He had to be 100% normal human like us in every way but sin. He had to represent us all. He had to be able to fully sympathize with us without any superhuman advantages. Now, we'll get into the, how he does this. But in his humanity, he couldn't cheat. He couldn't have advantages. He had to be just like you and me. Anyone here ever uh, play youth basketball? Or anyone here playing youth basketball? You can put your hands up. I'm not going to call on you. I'm just looking. All right. I did for a little while. I wasn't very good. Um, I, was, I couldn't get the concept that when I had the ball and someone was in my way, I couldn't like, run over them. Um, so I didn't do too well. Uh, but I played. And just, so just imagine the scenario here that will, I think, help us understand this. Imagine you're playing youth basketball with your team. And you're at practice. And along comes uh, LeBron James to your practice. Right? LeBron James. How many people know just to... Open this word and works. NBA superstar LeBron James, six foot eight, uh, drafted out of high school. All right, he was so good, uh, one of the greatest uh, basketball players of all time. Um, so he comes along to your practice, and uh, you're excited. LeBron James at my practice, and he says, "Hey guys, can I play some basketball with you guys?" I'm like, "Yeah, you bet you can." And and he's you know he's there and he's you know and you're you're feeding him. Uh, the ball and he's doing dunks and doing everything and it's just a great time and, and you know you play for a little while then he sits down and he says man I I love playing with you guys I just feel like one of you guys when I'm here you know just love I feel so I, you know close to you guys I feel like one of you guys 
if that were to happen in Hebrews say that, you'd be like, what? You're not one of us. You're LeBron James. You're, you know, six foot eight, superstar NBA player, uh, one of the top 100 most influential people in the world, actually. You're LeBron James. Don't tell us that you're one of us. That's ridiculous. Unless LeBron James shrunk down to like five feet tall, right? Took out his years of experience in the NBA, put a 10-year-old brain inside of him and so forth. He really can't say, I relate to you guys, right? He would have to become like you in every way. In your frailty, in your limitations, in your inexperience as well. Well, that's what God has done in Jesus Christ. He has become like us in every way. He's become an average, uninteresting human being. Normal. And he identified with us and he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's one of us. And he wants you and me to know this. He wants us to know that he's a brother and he's a human. He's a perfect high priest not only because he's sinless and faithful in that, because he's fully human and he fully sympathizes with us. He's become just like us and he knows what it is to be like you and to be like me. He knows what it is to be weak. He knows what it is to feel vulnerable. He knows what it is to have limited information. He knows what it is to experience all the emotions, the ups and downs that we experience. He he knows what it is to wake up in the morning and not really feel like going about your day. All those things. He knows. He's experienced. And I wonder sometimes how much of our misunderstanding of Jesus' humanity causes us to turn to alternatives besides Jesus, to put our faith somewhere else. Could it be that because we don't think He's a whole lot like us, that He can't really understand our situation? And could it be that we run to false alternatives because of that? Whether it's things like praying to saints or substance abuse or whatever else. Could it be that our lack of understanding of his humanity and the level of his identification with us and our weakness and vulnerability causes us to look for alternatives? And could it be that for you, in order to strengthen your, your ability and your quickness to go to him for help and really depend on him and really believe him to help you, could it be that that will be strengthened by understanding his humanity and understanding that he's a normal human being, he's fully human, just like you? He understands. And He went through what you go through. He might offer you hope and rescue. He wants you to know this. The Scripture is given to us by God so that we would know that He's fully human. He's a man. And as such, we are to put our trust in Him because He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, in our vulnerability. Second point, God the Son emptied Himself to become the man, Jesus. Now, having emphasized for the past 15-20 minutes His humanity, you may wonder, like, how do you reconcile that with His divinity? Because our passage here teaches us clearly that He's God. Here and elsewhere. He's God. 
He's conceived by the power of the Most High, it says in our passage. So the Most High, God works in power and causes him to be conceived. It, it's, it's as the Holy Spirit comes over Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, it says in verse 35. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, note that in that one sentence, the three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. This is not without purpose. The Most High, the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, in creating Jesus, who is called the Son of God. Do you know that, by the way, Jesus didn't exist until that moment? Did you hear me? You should be kind of looking at it like, whoa, whoa, where are you going with this one? Uh, Jesus did not exist until that moment. Jesus is the union of God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and man. And that union didn't happen until conception. Before that moment, the second person of the Trinity was not Jesus as we know him, fully God and fully man. He was God the second person, the eternal Son of God, the infinite Son of God, the, the, the means of creation, the one who rules and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity past to eternity future. But at this moment in time, the second person of the Trinity was joined with the human being to become one being with two natures. And that's very clear. It's very clear from what we just talked about. Very clear that He's God from what we read in verse 35 mentioning the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son in one sentence. He's the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He also is fully human. They go together in Jesus. I hope that makes sense to some degree. <laughs> in some ways it's mystery, right? We, it's hard to get our brains around that but we can't neglect one for the other that's the mistake that christians make that's the mistake that the church at time times has made to somehow compromise one or the other to try to figure it out but we need to emphasize both fully they go together and so he is fully god that's obvious from luke chapter one he's holy he's called holy he's sinless he's created as a sinless human a full human but a sinless one he's god the son of god so the question is then how can he be fully god and fully man now maybe you're you're asking that but maybe you haven't gone to the next level because there are qualities about god that don't jive with human qualities right like god is omnipresent right Omni means all. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. That's a wild thought. But scripture teaches that. There's no place you can go to get away from God. The triune God. There's no place you can go. He is everywhere. He, he inhabits every, every part of the universe. And he's outside the universe. That's really wild. He, there's no place you can go to get away from him. You, you inhabit the universe, so in a sense, and in some way we don't understand, he, he is still sovereign and existent in the space you occupy. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. And he's everywhere at once, and now he manifests himself according to his will and so forth, so we see him manifest himself at different times and places in different ways, indeed, but, but he's still sovereignly reigning and present everywhere. Omnipresent. Now, anyone here been omnipresent lately? 
wish you could be right, maybe sometimes. Humans can't be omnipresent. We are physical beings. And we are meant to be physical beings. We are spiritual beings too. And our, our final destination is to be always physical and spiritual, the new creation. So we're physical beings. We can only be in one place at one time. So how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? Right? Uh, you can look at all the other qualities of God too. Uh, uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, right? Can do anything at any point. Now humans can't do any, anything, right? Um, despite what Barney the Dinosaur says, you know, you can't, you can't be anything you want to be, right? You can't do what you want to do. You can't jump to the moon. No matter how hard you believe it, you'll never jump to the moon, all right? Uh, we have limitations. We're human. And, and so how can this possibly be? How can this work? Well, I think the, one of the best places to go in Scripture is Philippians chapter 2. So let's go there, and, and, and I think this will help us understand how he can be fully God and fully man. Philippians chapter 2. Let me read it, and then I'll uh, explain it. This is Paul actually talking to the Philippians, and his point in this passage, by the way, is not necessarily to explain how he can be fully God and fully man. His point in this passage is to uh, encourage us by the example of Christ to be humble and loving and lay our lives down for one another. That's the point here. But he goes to Jesus as the ultimate example, and he goes to Jesus' divinity and humanity together to illustrate this. So let's read Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now it goes on to say, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this passage in Philippians 2, Paul is pointing to the, the connection between his divinity and his humanity. And it's instructive for us. It says here that he's in the form of God. That Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he was... Now when it says the word form, it doesn't mean like in the mere outward appearance. The word for form means kind of the mode of God, the, the, the type of God. He's, he's God. He's a God being. He's... God himself. He's 100% God. That's what it's saying. Though he is God, he's divine. And there's only one God in three persons. Though he's divine, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he's fully God. Although he's, he's fully God, he's 100% real God, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so what does that mean? Well, he, he is equal with God. He's God. He's God the Son. But it's not something he counted as something to be grasped. So picture it this way. Grasping on to his divine prerogatives. Divine prerogatives to exercise his omnipotence, to exercise his omnipresence, to, to exercise whatever he wants, to do whatever he wants, to get the worship and the praise that he deserves at every moment. All these divine prerogatives he still held in his hand he still was God. He never became less than fully God. Okay? There's a, a wrong theory, uh, kenosis theory, emptying theory that says he actually abandoned those qualities. He can't. He's God. He's God eternal. He can't stop being God. 
So he never let go of those things like they went out of his hands, but he chose not to grasp them. He chose not to exercise them. He chose to, to in a sense, let go of those privileges, never losing them in the quality of who he was, but in the exercise of them. And why? What was the point? Well, the whole point was that he would be a servant, right? So it says, but he emptied himself. So he he emptied himself of, of these privileges, not these qualities, but these privileges, the exercise of these qualities, by taking the form of a servant. It's amazing. You want to know what God's like, read this passage and think about it. God, though He is so glorious and so worthy of our praise, gladly takes the form of a servant. Lowers Himself. Though He's the Most High, He lowers Himself. Takes the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So He becomes a man. Why? To be a servant. That's why. He wants to serve others. He wants to serve mankind. He lowers himself. He becomes like one of us. And now that's just enough. That's amazing enough to result in eternal praises to God for his amazing love and his humility that he would become a man, to be a servant, to walk among us, to know what it is to be human, to fully identify with us, to be weak and limited, to let go of those divine prerogatives, to experience what it's like to to be bewildered by life at times and and to feel overwhelmed by stresses and needs. That alone is wonderful enough to praise Him forever, but it doesn't stop there. And it says, in being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He is a sinless human. He never had to die. He became obedient in his servanthood. And the word servant is also correctly translated slave. He became a slave to you and to me, to humanity, to the point of death. The the extent of his servanthood, of his slavery on our behalf, is to the point of death. But it doesn't stop there. It says even death on a cross. If you want to know what God's like, look at the cross. Look at Christ on the cross. Look at God humbling Himself, becoming human to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because on that cross, He gave Himself for us. He took the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sin and our rebellion against God. He became a servant. The perfect servant. An ultimate servant. He did not die a peaceful, dignified death, but a horrific, shame-filled death of slow torture, bearing not just physical pain, that would have been enough, but the pain of bearing the sins of mankind, bearing the just penalty. God is a just and holy God. He's gracious. He's patient. He's loving. He's amazing. But, But He doesn't sweep stuff under the rug. He cannot ignore sin and rebellion. He would not be just. He would not be good. Sin is is the disposition and the action of turning away from what is good and right. Turning away from loving God with all of our being. Turning away from loving others as ourselves. 
It's living our own way, and it's not just a, something that's like a picadillo. It's just, you know, oh, whatever. It's not a problem. You know, people are, people are funny. They can do funny things. No, when we sin, it's active rebellion against God. And you may not be conscious of that, but behind it, if you really knew what was going on in your heart, you're saying, no, God, not you, me instead. That's what you do when you sin. You put yourself in his place, you exalt yourself, and it is active rebellion. And we can't excuse it as just, you know, well, just, just you know, a picadillo, just a little thing. Don't worry about it. We're all like that. No, the Bible doesn't describe it that way. God has compassion on us for sure, but he never pulls punches in describing sin. And the wages of that sin, of those choices, must be death. A spiritual death. Being cut off from relationship with God. If you do not belong to the Lord, if you are not at peace, reconciled with God, you are spiritually dead. Though you may be alive, you are spiritually dead. And you will die. We will all die physically. And if you live in that state of rebellion, you will stay in your spiritual death. And the eternal state of spiritual death we call hell. There's nothing worse. And yet God in His amazing love and humility and compassion and glory humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And He came to be your servant, to be your slave, to come under you, to lower Himself under you and say, yes, I will bear your sin on the cross for you. I will pay the penalties so that you through faith in Me can be forgiven and reconciled and not separated from God anymore, but to have life with Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it so well, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. God the Father treated Jesus as if He were sin incarnate and poured out His holy justice on Him. His righteous wrath for your sins. Your sins, my sins. The rest of that verse says, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So that through faith in Christ, being connected to Christ, the Father could forgive us fully and freely and treat us as if we had lived the righteous life that Christ lived. Treat us as if we are kings and queens with our brother Jesus. Counted righteous. Counted right before God. This is what He did in, in letting go of those divine prerogatives and humbling Himself, becoming a servant, going to the cross for your sin. He, as fully God and fully human, came to serve you and to rescue you. So that you would be forgiven and would see Him in all of His glory and you would find His love and His glory and goodness the most precious thing you could ever think of. Theologian Bruce Ware uses the metaphor of a good king to help understand what Jesus did for us. Imagine a good king who sees a poor beggar in his kingdom and his heart goes out to that poor beggar. He, he cares for him. He wants to bring relief and rescue to his situation. He's the king. He lives in a palace. He commands a vast army. He eats sumptuous meals all the time. He has the best care. He, he lives in glory as a king. But because he loves that poor beggar, he wants to go and rescue him and bring him relief from his situation. So he decides, I'm going to leave my throne and I'm going to leave my palace and I'm going to go live as a beggar with that beggar. And so he exchanges, he steps off his throne, he exchanges royal robes for rags, his crown for unkempt hair, the safety and grandeur of the palace for the danger of the streets, to sit by 
the side of this beggar, dirty and destitute. And although at any moment he could call upon the royal chefs to make an extravagant meal, he chooses to go hungry with the beggar. Although he could call on his armies to defend himself from the hoodlums and ruffians of the street, he chooses to be mistreated along with the beggar. And though he has access to the best care and health care, he chooses to struggle with constant sickness with the beggar. He chooses to enter into full identification with the beggar in order to fully lead him into redemption, to know his love for the beggar, so that beggar would know the depth of his love and to fully rescue that beggar. That's what Jesus has done as fully God and fully man. He has let go of those divine prerogatives that he could come to serve you, but he goes further than the king in the story, doesn't he? Not only does he identify with you, but he takes on himself your sin, your rebellion, your attitudes, your actions on himself, and he takes them to the cross so they can be atoned for and paid for and put away. And when you put your faith in him, you're forgiven that very moment. It's simple. All you need to do simply is say, I, I trust you, Jesus, in what you've done. There's no formula. There's no ritual that goes with that simple faith. To trust Him and in Him to find forgiveness and then new life. Because the Bible teaches us when we believe, He comes and He lives in us and dwells in us and gives us new life. And He's committed to our good. He's committed to change us, to make us like Him. He's committed to use us to do good in His name. That's the wonder of Jesus. That's the wonder of the Incarnation. If the band could come up. When we understand these things, they change us. They transform us. So I told you in the beginning, I, I believe these truths transform us. They change us. And what I want to do as we finish is just to give you some ways that this does. And I, you can pick. But I... I listed seven different ways. You don't, you don't have to write this all down. Um, you could probably figure these out yourself. But Dan, if you could put those up. These are just seven ways that this truth, the truth of his incarnation changes us. First, we live more deeply in God's love when we appreciate his loving humility in becoming man. We live more deeply in God's love. We understand how much he loves us, just like the beggar in the story, right? Would understand the love of the king. We understand God's love for us when, when we recognize he's become a man to come and identify with us and rescue us. We confide in him more because we know that he understands us. He, he gets it. He gets what it's like to be human. So we confide in him more. We feel closer to him because he's just like us. He's a normal person. He's not a, a Hollywood star. He's a normal person who understands. We, we feel closer to him. I guess if you're a Hollywood star, maybe you wouldn't feel closer to him. But the rest of us, we feel closer to him. I'm just kidding. We have a higher view of humanity because we realize that God, the Eternal One, has now wed himself to humanity forever. God, the Son, is now eternally a human being. Boy, that changes our view of humanity. God must truly be interested in humanity if he would marry himself to humanity, to be united to humanity in this way. And therefore, we should have a high view of humans as well. We're more confident in sharing the good news because we realize, wow, this is so relevant to people. Do you, have you heard about the king who came and lived among us to rescue us? We understand this is relevant. We more, we're more confident of 
of Jesus' death for us because we know it's truly substitutionary. He became a man, and he died as a man. And he was raised from the dead, by the way, as a man. So he's our hope. We know that that there's a future for us in Christ because we've seen it in the book. Jesus is a risen, resurrected man in his new body after his faithful death. God raised him. We're more confident of our future resurrection because Jesus rose as a human. Now, I don't know, maybe these, one of these strikes you. Maybe you just simply, I trust, would feel closer to Jesus. Maybe you're more eager to share the good news. Maybe this is the first time for you that it, it's kind of made sense. I can see this. I can get it. And maybe you've not put your faith in Jesus. And maybe for you, this is the moment, the place to put your faith in Jesus and just say, Jesus, I believe. I receive you. Whatever the particular application might be, let's just take a moment before we transition to communion to consider what truth about his incarnation would change our lives.